Hello and welcome to a special series of BAFTA podcasts. In the weeks leading up to the 2019 Virgin Media British Academy Television Awards and BAFTA Television Craft Awards, I sat down with some of the nominees to chat about their work, nominations and lives in TV. Today we're talking to a diverse and extraordinary group of directors about their work and how each of them work in their different genres. I'll be talking with multi-award winning director Stephen Frears, who's nominated in the Director Fiction category, as well as fellow nominee Killing Eve director Harry Bradbeer. Multi-camera directors of The Royal Wedding, Prince Harry and Meghan, Helen Scott, Simon Stafford and Julia Knowles, and Director Fiction nominee of The Long Song, Mahalia Bello, and Director Factual nominees Joe Perlman and David Sutar, who brought us Bross after the screaming stops. Each gives us their different perspectives on their work and how they bring a programme together. Joe Perlman and David Sutar are nominated for one of the most talked about programmes of the year. Bross After the Screaming Stops showed brothers Matt and Luke Goss at their candid best as they reunite to prepare for a comeback tour. Guys. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank How are you feeling? I mean, it's been an amazing experience. Um, the film's been out for a while, so it's been this kind of weird roller coaster of kind of um, acclaim and then people not seeing it and then people seeing it finally. So um, to be here now, I think, is, uh, feels like a great fulfillment of uh, what we were trying to achieve. When you guys are looking for a new project, what kind of sparks your interest? I think inspiration can come from anywhere with a lot of these projects. It can just be like an article, a piece of music, a film, a piece of archive that you, found, that you find. I just, it, it's truly one of those things with documentary that any time you discover a tiny bit of a story, you just want to start digging and see, what, see what's at the core of the story. And I think it's about characters, mainly for me, because without those personalities and without the honesty that they want to give you, yeah. um, you're just not going to deliver the level of film that we're trying to put out there. Which leads us nicely into the <laughs> Bros documentary, which is unbelievable viewing for a start. It also went huge. Did you expect it to go that big? When you were making it, did you think, did you kind of have an inkling, this is going to be massive? Well, yes and no. You sort of, you know what you're making, but the mm. whole way through, you never know how it's going to be received. It was released out in the cinemas, but it didn't really sort of catch. And then when the BBC put it out, it grew and grew and grew. And that was amazing to see because at one point we feared that only the fans of the band were going to see it. And we always wanted it to be a standalone piece that everyone could see and enjoy. I think it always had that kind of cult fil yeah. film feel to it. And I think um, we used to laugh and cry and have so much fun in the edit that it felt like if people don't get to see this, it'll be a real shame. What was the day to day like? How can you even <laughs> begin to make a documentary like this and because you can't really script it these kind of films are about embedding yourselves we have to become part of these people's lives otherwise they're and not they going to be that honest and they need to trust you as well exactly yeah, so we're, we're there every second of every day with them in the evenings we're having dinner with them we're there with them the whole time because if you if you didn't give up your life for this film to become best friends with them counselors brothers whatever we became it just wouldn't have been the film that it was and they wouldn't have trusted us and it, yeah it wouldn't have been ultimately what we delivered one of the things we like to do, as opposed to some of the American-style crews, is keep it small, because then it's intimate. Then you can have those those relationships with them. Whereas, whereas four cameras, four cameras and ten people, yeah. they feel like they're on a film set. Whereas we always try and run it differently, so that they know the individuals where we're at. You know, when we work in in the morning, they'll know what mood we're in because we've spent so much time with them. We know what mood they're in, and we know what we can go with this. Was it the film that you guys set out to make? Is that the film that we saw? Yeah, pretty much. I would say in in 
not absolute, but yes. Did you intend for it to be as um, ridiculous yeah, and as funny and yeah. as, as crazy yeah. as it was? Absolutely. These are, the pe these are the people we were dealing with. And yeah. if we're not getting deep with these people, if you're not connecting with people, all you get is the surface fluff of PR. Matt is a hilarious person. Luke is a very funny, caring person as yeah. well. That yeah. needed to come across on camera. And I think we delivered that at the same time as not taking the piss, which was a very important thing that yeah. we, we I was going to say that there is a really fine line between making a documentary like this and it's slipping into mockumentary. Well, that was something we were really conscious of because, I mean, look, part of who they are now is because of how they were treated 30 years ago and, yeah. you know, by the press. And that's part of why they gave us so much because they felt like they had a point to prove back to the UK and to, to the wider audience. And we were really conscious of the fact that we couldn't slip back into just taking the mickey out of them and just putting all of the funny bits in. There were plenty more of, you know, sh uh, of parts where they show their sort of over-the-top um, characters. And there was one particular moment where Joe, myself and the editor, Will, came together after an incident while filming um, and just said to each other, we've got to make a sort of balanced film here where we're not just slipping into just showing the funny side and there's and no way a, yeah. a key moment for it wasn't and it there's no way you come away at the end of this film laughing at these people you've laughed with them no, and then true. you're in love yeah. with them because they got on stage they're brothers yeah. finally they're back together and that was what we were trying to achieve yeah yes the start of the film is funny yes there's loads of amazing one-liners in the film but ultimately the heart at the core of the film and the brotherly love is what is what people enjoy about this yeah. film do you think they were wary of, of you guys, especially at the start, or do you think, no, really? not at all. We, they trusted us implicitly. Because, for, ex for example, if somebody took me, um, you know, to the sea, and they said, just, just sit and look at it, just gaze at the sea, and we're just going to get some <laughs> shots, I, as someone who works in telly and media, would go, guys, what? Yeah, but, also, but, but Luke does. But I mean, he works in film. <laughs> this is so, so he's very conscious of, you know, Because those bits were be. quite funny. Yeah, but he's also that... Per I can't stress enough that these are the people. <laughs> yeah. These aren't constructed moments. Like, th that is a moment with Luke, as in, yeah. maybe I'll go down to the beach. You, you don't see him hike So up. you followed him down Absolutely. to the beach. Absolutely. And, like, the top of the hill. The top we of the hill like, What do you do on your time off? He goes, well, I go hiking. Brilliant. So let's we go, go hiking. hiking. We have a topic that we want to speak to at the top of the hill, but but let's go hiking, let's see you. And then at the top, let's just have a moment. He goes, well, what do you normally do? I meditate. Well, go on then. Perfect. So you sat on the top of the hill meditating. We're like, that Tell us what you're thinking. Us. And again, wow. it goes back to that point of like us guiding the film and letting them be themselves. It's always a collaboration, isn't it? We've touched on there are some very funny moments. There's also some tricky moments. You're dealing with two brothers. There's a, a lot of history there. It's also incredibly uncomfortable yeah. to sit and watch two family members yeah. scream yeah. at each other. Yeah. How, um, how did you they're, they're film those and how did you they're feel They're incredibly painful. It? I mean, it's that thing of being embedded, but it was more just focus on what's going on. We'll chat about it afterwards. You know, if we need to calm this down at some point afterwards, we'll have to calm it down, whatever we have to do. But you know these things are building towards that. Um, and, you know, we're filmmakers. Like, these are, you need to have it out because if you don't have it out, well, everything's unsaid. And everything's gone unsaid for 20 years, 30 years mm. with them. So if anything, our yeah. obligation in the film was to make them have it out and make sure that they were going to get to the stage because without, I think without us, it would have been a real struggle. Oh, definitely, mm. definitely. And they say it was like therapy to them and they're closer now than they ever have been. In terms of your careers, what advice would you kind of go back and give yourself, things that you've learned along the way? All the times you messed up. <laughs> yeah, no, just enjoy it all, enjoy it. What about enjoy you? it. I guess the big one is just shoot everything. Everyone's got a camera in their pocket. Like literally just keep shooting. You, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna kind of get there. And that feels like something that I kind of did for a long time. I need to know as well, do you still speak to Matt and Luke? Yes, yeah, 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 quite. How's? 
course. You haven't yeah. fallen out of it. No, no, no. <laughs> no. Bad loop, fall out. <laughs> Director Stephen Frears has been nominated for 11 BAFTAs across film and television and his career spans 50 years. It would be impossible to understate his influence as a filmmaker in the UK. Multi-award winning director Stephen Frears, congratulations because your nomination for directing and miniseries are two of the 12 that this series has received. Um, let's start cold. Let's go back to the beginning and actually where you began your kind of your career and your path as a director. So you've actually had um, a strong focus on writing. Yes. It started when I was at the Royal Court Theatre. The Royal Court was a writer's theatre and when I eventually started working at the BBC a lot it was a writer's medium. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of the names you've worked with at the BBC, Alan Bennett, Tom Stoppard, Stephen Polyakov, quite an amazing list there. What did your early experiences actually teach you about the craft of directing? Well, particularly Alan was such a brilliant writer. I mean, and such a clever man. What he wrote was so funny and so economical and so observant. You just had to pull your socks up and you had to be on your toes. So would you say that when you do take on a project, the, the writing and the script is kind yes. of the most yeah. important thing to yes, you? Yes, absolutely. If you don't get the script right, you won't make a good film. So once you have, you have decided on the script, talk us through the stages of your involvement with, with that project. You break it down in your head, and I tend to do that by uh, casting people. You know, you think, well, shall I cast that actor? Well, if it's that actor, it'll be this. If it's like that actor, it'll be that. So you start to pull it all to pieces and then re re reassembling it. So what was it um, that drew you to a very English scandal? Was it the script? It was just wonderful. It was, I mean, it, it was, an idiot would have done it. It wasn't a very difficult decision. First of all, the story that John Preston told in his book was very, very good and very funny and got the tone right. I remember talking to Richard Ingrams, who edited Private Eye at this time, and he said, oh, that's the one that gets the tone right. So I knew where I was. And then in terms of kind of drawing out these incredible performances by, by the actors, Ben Whishaw and Hugh Grant, they're both obviously nominated for BAFTAs. Well, you get good actors. Hugh is like Marlon Brando. He's a method actor. He comes very, very well prepared. He knows what he's doing. He interrogates you, me. Is this right? Is that, you know, he asks very, very considered questions. And Ben Whishaw, what's, what's he like to I work with? I have no idea what Ben Whishaw does, except that he's dazzling. <laughs> Hugh, I understood the machinery. I mean, I understand that kind of light comic acting, and I understand how it can v go into tragedy. Ben was much more mysterious. He's the most adorable man and a wonderful, wonderful actor, but where it comes from, don't ask me. It was a very, very easy job. You make it, it was, sound like it was quite an enjoyable job to do. It was do good fun, well. yes, of course yeah. it was a good fun. Hugh is entertaining and good company, and Ben is good fun, and the script was great, and the story was endlessly entertaining. So it was not a great struggle for me. Have there been jobs in your career yes, that were a, oh, a big had, struggle? Yes, miserable. Yes, I've had misery. But this was very, very enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think I'm supposed to say that. I'm sure I suffered for my art. The time that you started making movies at the BBC was called the golden era uh, of drama and then you moved into kind of British independent films and, and Hollywood and all that and then you came back um, with a very English scandal and you're making TV at a time that has kind of again been referred to as a golden era for, for TV drama. I mean, do, do you I even... I think there is better writing 
and possibly more interesting material in television than on, in, I mean, than in the movies. Yeah. Why do you think this shift from storytelling we've come to expect? Because from... the cinema abandoned life, and television moved into the vacuum. The films I make are more or less about rather odd bits of life. Once you stop making films about life, once you only make films about comic books or whatever it is, there's a whole subject you've left behind. I mean, the American cinema did it. I learned what I know about America largely from the movies, but then they stopped making those sort of films. You've said that you rely on your crew hugely and that crew, crew's a massive part of kind of bringing production together and... Crews are now phenomenal. The level of talent is very, very high. I tend to make films about things I know nothing about, if that doesn't sound too stupid. Uh, so when I made Liaison, I could understand the humanity of the story, and I, but I knew nothing about Chateau or 18th century banners or anything like that. So everything had to be taught me, and I remember the designer coming in explaining how you should make the film visually. We had a brilliant costume design. I mean, everything was explained to me, and eventually I thought, well, I'll do the bits I can do, and other people can do those bits, and I allow other people to fill the gap, because how else will you fill it? In other words, you stop pretending that you're Stanley Kubrick after a time. You stop pretending you know things you don't know. You stop fibbing. So I learned to trust people and to enjoy what they were bringing to it. You like learning, and I suppose you enjoy the not yeah. knowing. So in that sense, the whole thing has been a sort of educational course course for me. So you learn the whole time what it is you're doing. I find that rather interesting. With so many movies and achievements in your career, how do you keep your passion? Because the material interests me. I remember when I got the script of My Beautiful Laundrette. I remember when I got a script for The Snapper. I remember when I got Peter Morgan's script for The Deal. You know, it's just fantastic. It's like taking drugs. <laughs> uh, your work is very varied, but do you have any advice, I suppose, for young directors who are just breaking into this industry, what, what, what would you say to them? Take any job that you're offered. You have to work. The only way you learn is by doing it. Sandy McKendrick said, film direction can't be taught, it can only be learned, which is a very wise, so direct. And eventually you become more discriminating. And if you do things that are good, people will go on hiring you. And eventually you find what you like. Mahalia Bello is a former BAFTA Breakthrough talent and BAFTA Breakthrough Brit. She's nominated for Director Fiction for The Long Song, which is a fine-tuned exploration of the final years of slavery in Jamaica. She talks to us about telling stories that have been eradicated from history and getting the sparkle when you know a script is good. Congratulations on your BAFTA nomination. How does that feel? I wasn't expecting it. And the idea that a group of people took time with my work and talked about it and then nominated me is... It's a huge compliment. It's such a huge yeah. compliment. So, yeah, I'm, I feel very lucky. Very and celebrated. Also, yeah, yeah, and, and I, I'm going to take that, you know. Well, you're no stranger to BAFTA because um, your beautiful drama, Ellen, uh, you got a BAFTA TV Craft Award um, in 2017 yeah. um, for Breakthrough Talent. You're also a BAFTA Breakthrough Brit. What's it like to even be called a breakthrough and, and get a BAFTA for that? Um, oh, it was amazing. It's a really, it feels, suddenly you feel like, okay, you, you might belong a little bit and you might be doing all right. You, you're kind of, I feel like I'm still learning my craft, but I hope I do that forever. You know, I hope that's part of my process. So, yeah. 
to be, you know, for, for people to say that I deserve to be involved in BAFTA in whatever way is quite a beautiful thing. I want to kind of rewind to the start of your career and find out a little bit about how you kind of got into directing. Mm -hmm. Where did it all start for you? Where did it start? I, I did want to direct from very young, but to be, I don't know when it started. I feel like I've said different things to different people over the, over the years, <laughs> and so I feel a bit fraudulent about it. Um, I, I did want to direct. I went to Anna Shear Theatre when I was a kid, and they gave you a chance at Anna Shear to do a bit of directing, and I loved it. And then I, did, I went to National Youth Theatre as well, and I ended up directing, so I think I, think I ended up loving it for that reason. How do you get good at directing? Practice, I think, making huge mistakes. And I mean, in the end, I, I got into National Film School. Because mm -hmm. before that, I made lots of shorts. Like, I made like 20 shorts. Most of them wouldn't see the light of day. I mean, these were like 50 pound shorts, you know. You know, it was like, <laughs> they're really, but I mean, like, and, and oddly, I think I did create a language through doing that. So let's, let's come to current day. You are nominated for Director for Fiction category. Can you talk a little bit about how this project actually came about and kind of came to life? Um, Rosie Allison from Heyday uh, gave me the novel uh, to read and it was brilliant. It was, mm. and, but I, I had also just spent a year away working essentially and I, I thought I couldn't do anything else. I did want to do it but my life meant that I couldn't necessarily do it. You know? And then I found myself talking about the project and every time I kept talking about it there was sparkle. You know when you feel something yeah, in you your stomach. Yeah, you let it go. And I loved it and, and I loved her perspective. So the long song, it, it sort of, it got into my stomach and, and often for me it comes from falling in love with a character and I fell in love yeah. with July. I fell in love with her and mm -hmm and um, just wanted the camera to understand her, you know. Yeah, it's, it's stunning. When you first get a script, um, what are those initial stages like? What do you do? How do you break it down? I mean, obviously I'm not a director, but where does that all start? One thing I learned is you, 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 you actually kind of create the scent of the whole piece. It's a tonal thing in the first few seconds of, of the, the project, you know. Right. So, um, so for me, it was sort of working from there. And Sarah Williams, and I'd never worked with a writer quite like her. She cares about the project and, and mm. she cared about the novel. I respected her a great deal and I think she seemed to respect me. I think she does. Um, <laughs> so so that, that meant that we could play. So it, mm -hmm. we know what period dramas are like, you know, on the BBC. So let's play off of that, you know, the, the kind of the, the landscape of the room, you know, and then let's shift it. Let's go, actually, this story isn't about that. This story is the other story, the story that you actually has been eradicated from history. Yeah, the story you know, let's let's seen. go and see the other part. Uh -huh. And and yeah, so as soon as we got that, that became the kind of the method for most of it. Right. So it was a kind of an interruptive quality to yes. the whole thing, and and it meant that you know we found ways of um, defy like defiance within the language of of the edit and in the sound and the song and. It was great researching mm. it because you found, we found so many acts of defiance um, through our research, you know, it was, it, it was fascinating. How do you um, manage the chemistry between the actors? How, how, how do you go about that in order to tell, you know, a really honest story? The chemistry, I think, just kind of came um, naturally. It's quite rare to get a group of actors, especially black actors, in one project together. Mm. And I think that was quite a b brilliant thing, you know, and, and, and that created a, 
an atmosphere in its own right. A lot of people respected each other and it was such a big subject and we were having a lot of conversations mm -hmm. about, about race and how, you know, colorism and all these things that affect daily life. And that was, it was really interesting because I think it was quite cathartic for a lot of people as well as difficult, you know. What are some of the things that you've learned along the way that you wish you could go back almost and tell yourself? I think always have an eye on visual language. You know, why, why are you shooting what you're shooting? Don't, don't cover for cover's sake. You can tell a scene in one frame if, if it works. And, um, you know, trust your gut on that a little bit more. Trust your gut. Actually, most mistakes I've ever made is when I, I, I knew it wasn't right. Really? Yeah, and I don't think you, it's, that's something you just got to remind yourself over and over and over again. Trust your gut. Harry Bradbeer has an extensive television career working on shows such as This Life, Stanton Cops, The Hour, Fleabag, and the show that he's nominated in Director Fiction for this year, Killing Eve. Harry, it's great to have you here. Let's go back to the beginning. How did you actually start your career? Where did it all begin for you? Well, I was at the end of university and I'd been directing on the stage and I loved it. And I ended up uh, making this little 10 minute short film. Well, for me, it was like I realized what I was put on this earth to do. It just felt really? completely like home. It was so, as simple as that. It was as simple as that. And so was it just you on your own making this film? No, no, I mean, I, I had to enlist the f help of my friends. And you know, the lesson from that for me was find your friends, find enthusiastic partners because you're having to work with people that you trust and you feel comfortable around. And I think making films with your friends is the most wonderful thing. Which surely makes the work easier as well when yes. you do have that relationship <clears throat> with somebody. Yeah, it's, it's shorthand. It's like, as I've found, I started off working with Phoebe professionally and now we're working together as friends and professional colleagues and we know each other, we understand each other. It means that you can be, at, you can be cross with each other, you can be frank with each other, really blunt, you know shout at each other a bit. Who's more blunt, you or Phoebe? I think we're both blunt in different ways. I can be very uh, emphatic when I absolutely am clear about something. And uh, she can, she has very particular things sometimes in her head which she wants to do and, uh, and then with them sometimes we go head to head on that. Really? And who wins most of the time? I think we'd, we'd always probably say the other one wins. <laughs> generous with each other. Must be a compromise then. Yeah. Let's talk about the tone of kind of Fleabag and Killing Eve. Mm. Because they're, they're very different actually. Mm -hmm. I think when you look at them, how do you, um, I guess, how do you pull that off? And how do you develop those tones so they go in different directions? You're being led by the script and the characters. Fleabag is governed by her relationship with the camera and the way she um, manipulates us and plays with us. So it's always a camera that stays, if not on her shoulder, in her presence, which gives a very specific style and a very immersive, um, reactive style to the camera. What you add to that is another camera, but it's shot in a widescreen format and with an anamorphic lens. So you've got a very cinematic idea there in contrast to the um, verite style of the, ca the handheld camera, which makes you feel like you're there and witnessing events as they happen. The lighting was high contrast. It was not um, a kind of light entertainment wash. It had the benefit of giving pathos to it. So that marked it out from some other comedies, I think. 
And Killing Eve is a completely different genre in that it starts off as a thriller. And it is unashamedly a thriller. But with Phoebe's hand on the tiller, it becomes a thriller with comedy and anarchy and subversion. So you are starting to mix up your genres again. It's as intimate in some ways as Fleabag is, I would say. The camera is still harnessed and very close in and examining faces and emotional experiences, mm -hmm. but far grander uh, in the scale in, in Paris, in Italy, in London. We wanted to mark a, a contrast between getting inside people's heads and seeing the, the world that they lived in. I don't want to make a glamorous thriller for the sake of it. The, the, the decisions about glamour and scale and colour all have to come from character. And this was a character that wanted all of those things till she was sick of them. She wanted a grand apartment. She wanted to live in a beautiful street. She wanted to go to Italy and kill people in an interesting way. <laughs> so, um, and with Phoebe bringing odd left field funny details to the way she did her work, it ended up being very lush and uh, naughty as well as epic. Julia Knowles, Simon Stafford and Helen Scott are nominated as part of a team of multi-camera directors who brought the royal wedding, Prince Harry and Meghan, to our screens. They talk about the challenges of bringing together a programme that was seen around the world by 1.9 billion people. Okay, directing dream team in front yeah. of me here today. <laughs> I should start by saying congratulations. Thank, Thank you. you very much. I'm interested to know, how do you all end up working together on the Royal Wedding? On the Royal Wedding, we hardly ever saw, saw each, each other. other. We saw each other at one planning <laughs> meeting. And was then, that it? Yeah. yeah. We were three very separate units that we communicate and on the day, we're in three separate trucks alongside each other. Yeah. But we literally would sort of see each other whilst one of us was running to the toilet and go, hi, how's it going with you? So briefly talk me through what was happening in each truck then. I mean, my, my, my truck was essentially the, the service. So it was uh, Harry and William arriving on, uh, on, on the Great West door. It was everything within the chapel. Once the guests are inside, I'm with them. So it was... Um, it, it, it was just, it was the actual wedding. So I was doing the route scanner. So everything outside of the castle uh, I was involved with, so everybody arriving, uh, the carriage as it, as it processed around the castle into the town and up the long walk I was doing. So basically I was doing it for as an international feed, so any broadcast could take my, the output of my, my truck. Yeah, and about 1.9 billion did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. No pressure. Uh, so I was taking Julia's service coverage, and I was taking Simon's route coverage, and I had 26 other sources to add in as well, so presenters in different studios, reporters, helicopters, different extra cameras. And how do you even begin to plan for something like that? I mean, when it comes to a shooting script, is that... Well, from my point of view, I am following really the events as they happen. So we're not organising the wedding, which makes things a lot easier. We are putting cameras on something that somebody else is organising, mm. which does make things a little bit easier. So from my point of view, it's far more of a logistics schedule exercise, whereas for these guys, it's a bit more mm. intricate. The, the, the main job was planning and deciding where the cameras were going to go. Um, uh, for, for each part of the route, as they, as they came in, they were walking down the hill to go into the chapel. 
Um, the bride came up the long walk as they went out, round the round tower the other way. So we needed to have cameras in positions where we could shoot both ways. But you said you um, only had how long the night before to kind of look through all of this? Well, we, we had a rehearsal on the Thursday at 11 o'clock, which was the, the carriage going out. And that was the one rehearsal, and it was just one route as it went out. So that's right. one go at that. In the chapel, the chapel, the chapel is a different thing because obviously it's music, it is uh, the readings, it was the gospel choir, it was the actual vows. And so when it came to the vows as well, I really wanted to, there were certain shots I really wanted to get. So there was a lot of preparation for what those shots would look like. But at the same time, there was a point where um, Doria stopped and stood and waited and I was just saying to Hilary, who's a brilliant vision mixer, don't cut, don't cut, wait, wait, because I just thought Charles will come over and he will either be completely amazing and do something fantastic or it'll be that moment where you go, no, and he walked over and he took her hand. And I just wanted to see that. I wanted to see that moment. So it's that frightening thing of going, don't cut. You know, this is the story right now. This single mother is standing there in the heart of the establishment and the Prince of Wales is walking over and he took her hand and escorted her out. A lot of people <laughs> tuned in. Why do you think that was? What is that kind of that enduring kind of power of a royal wedding, do you think? Uh, it was a different royal wedding. I mean, obviously the Kate and William wedding was enormous and huge and loads of people watched it, but this was a totally different story. But I think there's a great warmth towards um, the British royal family. You know, I've never had more messages from all over the world immediately we came off air. Yeah. People everywhere who tuned in. And so I think it's just the enduring appeal of a love story, a royal love story, and a different love story. I mean... A, and a beautiful location. And a, and a sunny, sunny day! day. <laughs>